Well, in God's good plan, it looked like he wanted us to celebrate Easter a little bit early this year and a little bit more often. Uh, Isn't it great to reflect upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It's one of the sole pillars of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and uh, the church needs to hear the gospel proclaimed over and over and over and over again until the Lord returns. And so it's been a real joy for me to be able to work through 1 Corinthians 15 with you and to be reminded of the resurrection of Jesus and how that secures our future bodily resurrection as well. I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning and want to uh, work through uh, another passage of Scripture with you. Um, If you have a bulletin, you can pull that out, and there is a handout in there if you'd like to follow in that way. You don't have to fill in all the blanks, Uh, but uh, perhaps it just kind of keeps you uh, on track with us as we work through uh, the text of Scripture together. Well, as we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there are 58 verses, uh, quite a lengthy chapter. Most chapters in the New Testament are not this long. Uh, but of course, uh, as we work through the chapter, we find out that there's a lot of great information here about the resurrection of Jesus. We're in the second half of 1 Corinthians 15, and we notice that uh, when the second half starts in verse 35, that Paul begins answering skeptical questions that perhaps some of the Corinthians were asking him about the nature of our future bodily resurrection. If you look in your Bible at verse 35, uh, Paul mentions two questions that I believe form the structure for the rest of uh, this chapter. But he says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? Last Sunday night, uh, we dealt with verses 36 through 49, which talk about the type of body that believers will inherit. We learned all kinds of different things about the future resurrection body and how glorious that will be. And so I think verses 36 through 49 answer the second question of verse 35. This morning, we'll look at that first question and Paul's answer. In verse 35, he asks, how are the dead raised? And that's what he's gonna answer in verses 50 through 57. Now, as we start into uh, this section, I want to start with a question. Uh, Have you ever had someone ask you a question before? And uh, when they ask you the question, uh, you try to determine whether they're being genuine in their concern or or, uh, asking the question, or whether they're being motivated by something else. Um, I, uh, from time to time, not only in my own household, Uh, but also as I function as a pastor, the church here or function in the community, someone will ask me a question uh, that it's a very innocent question. It's a simple question, but uh, from time to time, I want to to try to figure out exactly, well, what what is motivating that question? Uh, Believe it or not, someone can, uh, people can sometimes ask a pastor a question that is sourced out of their own kind of, skeptical agenda. Uh, Well, uh, fortunately, by God's grace, I haven't met much of that here yet. Uh, I'm sure time uh, will will tell. There'll be be other questions that come like that. But as Paul is in this section, I believe that he's answering uh, legitimate questions that are sourced out of skepticism and unbelief. Some of the Corinthians did not believe that there would be a bodily resurrection. And so Paul in verses 50 through 57 
describes how our bodies must undergo a change. He actually, in these verses, I believe, gives three characteristics of the change that must occur to the bodies of believers in order for them to inherit the kingdom. And so this morning, we're going to look at uh, a good part of some of this passage. I'm going to save just a little bit for next week whenever we have the Lord's table together uh, as, a, as a meditation uh, in that morning. But three characteristics of the change that must take place. Uh, first, in verse 50, I see Paul describing the demand or the need for a transformation. Look in your Bibles at verse 50. Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So first in this verse, you see the demand for a transformation. It's something that must happen to us. It's not something we can do to ourselves, but something that must occur. This is absolutely essential then for believers to possess a glorified body so that they might inherit God's kingdom. That's what this text says. Now, one of the interesting things about this text is I think it's laid out like a proverb or it's proverbial. You can see I've kind of lined it out here. If you can see the print behind me, that's large enough. If not, it's it's in your notes as well. But you've got uh, this three-part statement. You've got a subject, a verb, and an object, and then repeat it again. He says, flesh and blood cannot inherit God's kingdom, and the perishable cannot inherit, inherit the imperishable. Again, I think that this parallel structure is proverbial. I've got a, just a few examples of some of my favorite Proverbs here that, that show you the same thing. Sometimes when you're reading through the Proverbs, you need to look for this structure because I think it will really help you understand the text. Proverbs 16, 28, a dishonest man, that's the subject, spreads, verb, strife, object, Right after that, it says a whisperer separates close friends. These parallel phrases in the Proverbs are meant to complement and supplement each other. They're meant to give you kind of the full picture of what the author is trying to say. There's a few other Proverbs that are like this. Uh, actually, there are many Proverbs like this. Proverbs 14, 19. The evil bow down before the good. The wicked, the verb is assumed, bow down at the gates of the righteous. If you begin comparing these things, you see that the evil and the wicked, well, that's the same thing. They're doing the same thing, but they're bowing down in different places, but it's still before the good or the righteous. And then uh, the proverb that my parents used on me as a teenager, and many of you paid me to put this in here uh, for your teens this morning, a door, as a door turns on his hinges, so a sluggard turns on his bed. Okay, have you ever had that verse used against you before. If not, you just did. So um, what the reader is left to do with Proverbs like this is to try to figure out how do I relate to this? But again, what I want to just, I want you to see is there's uh, the, re, the, the author is just giving you a fuller picture by restating the same thing with different words. So let's go back to our verse in verse 50. So we look at this we see that the author speaking, Paul speaking, in synonymous parallelism. The subjects are flesh and blood, and then later on in the second phrase, and perishable. Perishable things, or things that are subject to corruption. And so these are parallel ways for Paul to describe 
our present physical body. It consists primarily of flesh and blood, right? Primarily. And it is subject to decay. It will perish. It will be corrupted. Then I move to the, the, the end of this statement, the objects. The objects are the kingdom of God, God's kingdom, and imperishable things. I think these two objects are synonymous as well. And this is a way for Paul to describe God's kingdom, future kingdom, as something that will not corrupt, decay, or fade away. It will go on forever and ever. It's imperishable. One of the questions, of course, we need to ask at this point is, of what kingdom, though, is is Paul talking about in this text? And uh, just to be transparent with you, I don't think he really answers the question fully. I can make a few statements about the kingdom, though, that he's describing here. I can say that the kingdom that he's describing here is not a present thing. It's not a present reality, but it's something that's in the future, okay? If it was a present thing, then this text wouldn't really make a lot of sense because what he's saying is when we're in this current physical body, we cannot be a part of God's kingdom. It's impossible because we're in something perishing and God's kingdom will be something imperishing. So if you were to ask me what kingdom is he describing here, I think it's something like the eternal or the everlasting kingdom that would include heaven and the millennial kingdom and the eternal state when we live with Jesus forever and ever. Uh, But at the end of the day, all I can really say for sure about this text is he's not speaking about a present kingdom on earth or it would be possible for flesh and blood to inherit that. I mean, we are living, we are here I don't think he's talking about a present kingdom in this passage. Moving beyond that, though, you go to the verb. The verb is the exact same in both cases. It's inherent. And Paul's point here is that there is no way these subjects can inherit that object, God's kingdom, the imperishable kingdom, without God doing something. It would be as if we tried to go and live on another planet or a moon, or one of our, uh, or our, our moon. There is no way that our terrestrial body can survive a celestial location, right? You've done enough research and science and trips to the moon and so on to realize this. There's no way our terrestrial body can survive in a celestial location without protect, productive, protective gear, right? Or some sort of breathing machine or something. There's always a way people try to get around what you're saying, right? But the point is, we cannot live in a vacuum. Our bodies are only designed for certain temperature ranges and so on. If we try to leave this planet and go somewhere else, there's no way this physical body is going to make it. Paul's overall point in verse 50 is that in our present state, entrance into God's kingdom would be impossible. It's impossible to inherit. Both of those verbs, inherit, are negated here. That leads us to the next part of this text, what I call the nature of our transformation, verses 51 through 53. And uh, that brings Paul to a place where he introduces what I'll call the principle of transformation, or the idea of transformation. Look at verse 51. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, 
For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immorality. First in this text, Paul explains that not all believers will have to die before their bodies will be prepared for a heavenly existence. Paul's writing this to the Corinthian believers. Perhaps some of them thought that even in their own lifetime, God may come back, and it's not required that every believer will have to die. Some will be just caught up to meet the Lord while they're still living on this planet. Then in verses 52 and 53, we, we have some very important verses I think it would be good for us to just slow down and look at for a moment. He, he says that this transformation will occur in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and at the last trumpet. Some of these phrases I find very easy. In a moment means quickly. It's going to happen suddenly. Uh, even the phrase in the twinkling of an eye. <coughs> yeah, that's a phrase that if you've been in a Baptist church for any length of time, you've probably heard that one. Uh, over and over again, but yet it's a phrase we don't use very much. I don't normally speak of, you know, the twinkle in someone's eye. Uh, Maybe you do, uh, but I don't. The twinkling of an eye here just speaks of the rapid motion of an eye or an eyelid. It's the blinking of an eye. So again, Paul is just emphasizing the suddenness, the immediacy of this, the quickness of this transformation. It's going to happen quickly in a moment in the blinking of an eye. But then he says, at the last trump, at the last trumpet. I want to say a few things about this. Uh, First of all, the the figure, the metaphor of sounding a trumpet was a very well-known means in the first century of issuing some sort of signal, oftentimes in battle. It was a signal used to uh, draw attention or to give direction, or to call a group or an army together. And so the trumpet metaphor here signals the quick transformation uh, of our bodies that will occur. But secondly, what I want to say about this phrase, at the last trumpet, is uh, when Paul says, at the last trumpet, he may mean one of two things by the word last. He might mean last as in a series of trumpet blasts, you know, first, second, third, last. He might mean like the last trumpet blast to be sounded, or since there are no other trumpet blasts in this text, I think he's using it to describe a trumpet that will be blasted in the last days or that will come in the end days. So there's one other thing I want to say about this, this reference at the trumpet of God. I think it's a trumpet in the last days. But another way to understand this text, I believe, comes from another passage that, Paul's, that Paul wrote where he, he already spoke about the sounding of a trumpet and the raising of the dead. About three years before Paul writes 1 Corinthians 15, he writes another passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I just want to read this passage with you. You can write down the reference, 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 16 and 17. This passage, you can see as an underline, has the sounding of the trumpet and the dead in Christ rising and we who are alive also being called up uh, to meet the Lord in the air. So let me just read this. It says, For the Lord himself 
will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. One of the things I want to show you that this text does that 1 Corinthians does not clearly do, but I think it's important, is this text connects these events, this time frame, the sounding of the trumpet with the return of the Lord. So although 1 Corinthians does not directly mention the return of the Lord, this text makes it very clear that when Paul is speaking here, he's speaking about a transformation that will occur to the the bodies of believers when the Lord returns at the rapture, I believe, of the church. And at that moment, God will raise the dead in Christ with their new incorruptible bodies and then transform the bodies of believers into bodies that can inherit the eternal kingdom of God, okay? So just to make this very clear, I think these two texts work side by side, written three years apart to do two different churches, both talk about the last trumpet and both have uh, directions here for the church about a future bodily resurrection. Now go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, or perhaps you never moved there because I gave it to you. After explaining this in verse 53, there's one more point that Paul makes. He explains that this transformation is a must. That is, it is absolutely necessary for things that are perishable to be, to put on, he says, or to be clothed with the imperishable in order to enjoy God's future kingdom. I think what this helps us to see is that, you know, God is not just starting over with future bodies, our future bodies in the future. It's not like he just scraps, you know, that body was just a mess, so we're just going to do something else completely. No, he uses the same substance. And from that seed, like a seed in the ground, he said in 1 Corinthians 15, like a seed in the ground, God will use that substance and create a body that will never fade away or perish. This means that our, old, our new bodies will be more than our old bodies, but will be in addition to them as well. Okay, and so that's the nature of the transformation. That leads us to one last point. I want to look at verses 54 and 55 with you before we leave here today, where we see what I'm going to call the results of our transformation. So Paul's not done in the text. He's got verses 54 through 57. And here he begins a powerful celebration of the results of that transformation that will occur one day when we inherit our glorified bodies. Look in verse 54, I'll read verses 54 and 55. Paul says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death Where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? If you look closely at verse 54, one of the things that you'll realize if you compare it to the verse right above it is it seems like Paul's repeating a lot of what he just said. Look at verse 53 again in your Bible. 
For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, this mortal body must put on the immortality, or uh, put on immortality. Then verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal (coughs) puts on the immortality. (coughs) Seems as if you're reading through this and Paul's just like repeating himself. However, we know that the Holy Spirit is leading Paul to repeat himself. And and so one of the questions we need to ask at this point is why does Paul repeat himself? Why did he, he just said that in verse 53. Why is he... Why is he continuing it and saying again, restating it in verse 54? And I think one of the answers to that question is this will allow Paul to to introduce the Old Testament. So Paul repeats himself in this way uh, so that he can uh, uh, describe how the Old Testament relates to what he's been saying. He's going to ground what he's been saying so far about these bodies resurrecting, and being changed with what the Old Testament says. And he, will, and he suggests here that when we rise, when believers rise and their bodies are transformed, that certain scriptures will be fulfilled. That's what he says here. Now, I want to look a little bit closer at this quotation with you that you see in verses 54 and 55. So let's read in the middle of the verse. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Just a few observations about this quote. Uh, First of all, notice that this quote comes in the form of a statement followed by two questions. And uh, what I made clear in the PowerPoint, and this is a little bit of cheating for you, is, is that these quotes also come from two different Old Testament texts. You see that there? If you're reading in like the ESV, for instance, you'll see quotation marks around the first phrase, but then they end, and then another set of quotation marks around the second phrase. Now, I actually uh, personally have spent a good bit of time over the last several years working on this passage because this is one of the passages I'm writing on uh, in my dissertation, but uh, I will not bore you with everything I think I know about this passage. I just point out I think this is a composite, a mixed-together quotation where Paul takes two different passages and he puts them right together to make a profound point about the defeat of death. The first phrase comes from Isaiah 25.8, and for sake of time, we won't turn back there. We're going to spend some time in Hosea in a moment, but... In Isaiah 25 and verse 8, the Old Testament text in the Septuagint could be translated this way. Death has swallowed up humanity forever. Okay? That's how it could be translated in the Old Testament. Death has swallowed up humanity forever. While we won't turn back there, I just want to suggest this to you, that Isaiah, when he describes death that way, is describing Death, according to a tradition uh, that was very common during that time where uh, people would portray death as a person. They would personify it and give it certain actions and attributes. And in this text, Isaiah has death swallowing up humanity forever. It's very interesting that among the, the some uh, scriptural authors and even some other authors of that era, they would, they would often describe death as having a gullet or a throat that would swallow things up. 
And so for many authors in the Old Testament, death is seen as a person swallowing up everyone and everything in its path. Or perhaps the better analogy is swallowing down. I don't know which is better, swallowing down. And so death is portrayed as having this appetite that is insatiable. It just keeps going and it keeps devouring all creatures and people. And Isaiah's quote here, uh, death has swallowed up humanity forever, I think captures that. Paul, however, uses it differently, doesn't he? You see the quote changes. Death is swallowed up in victory. Paul has death not as the object, or as the object, not as the subject. Death is not the one swallowing up. Death is being swallowed up in victory. That uh, causes uh, our discussion of Hosea 13, 14 to be interesting as well. I, actually, I'm going to invite you to turn back there in your Bibles for a moment. Hosea 13 and verse 14. I'll give you a little bit of time to find it. I want to take uh, a moment to kind of work through this text. You can see what Paul does with Hosea 13, 14. He asks two questions. He uses two questions from that text. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? I believe, to taunt death. As you go back to Hosea 13, Hosea 13 is a dark chapter about God's impending judgment that he is going to send on Israel and Ephraim, the largest tribe in northern Israel. If you're reading in Hosea 13, you're scanning the few, first few uh, verses there, you'll see that although God has been very good to Israel and Ephraim, they sin more and more. Look at verse 2, you can see that. They sinned more and more. Instead of loving God alone, they worshipped idols. They sin again and again. And so consequently in this chapter, Hosea informs Israel and Ephraim that God is going to act as a predator against them. Look in your Bibles at verse 7, for instance. This is God's thing. So I am to them, Israel and Ephraim, like a lion. That's not a good picture if you're on the other end of that. Like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breasts, and there I will devour them like a lion as a wild beast would rip them open. Okay, so is this like a warm and fuzzy Old Testament text? No. God's going to act like a predator against them and completely wipe them out. They will vanish away like smoke. They'll blow away like chaff in the wind. Their military presence will totally collapse. And this whole chapter up until this point, I believe, is demonstrating God's determination to destroy Israel and Ephraim on account of their sinfulness. That leads us to verse 14, which is the, the verse that he quotes. Look at verse 14. It says, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. Here's the quote. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, or grave, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. We come to this one verse. I want you to stay here because there, uh, there are only five little phrases, but it's a verse that's a little harder to understand. 
And one of the most difficult things about it would be the first two phrases, because translations take the first two phrases in one of two different directions. And uh, I'm confident that uh, those of you who are in the room have translations that have taken it in different ways. The Hebrew text, the first two phrases, can be translated either as questions or as statements uh, or declarations. And so, as I just read in my ESV Bible that I'm reading, if you take the first two phrases as statements, they could read like this. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. Now, if you take it that way, and uh, by the way, I'm reading the 2016 version of the ESV in a moment will tell you that some ESVs have changed. If you take those first twos as statement, what is God saying there? The beginning of this would be a promise where God is going to change his mind. He will not wipe them out like a savage beast, but he will ransom them and he will redeem them. If you take it that way, the two questions that Paul quotes in the middle of the verse O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Are meant by God as a mockery of death in the grave. They will be powerless when God comes to rescue Israel and Ephraim. As you can see, the ESV translators have taken it that way. The other way to take this passage is like the 2011 ESV, I just found out last night, and to take the first two uh, phrases as questions, as questions, okay? And uh, this is actually my preferred way of taking it. So if you got some ESVs or some other translations, you might have it stated like this. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? Okay, so if we take it this way, then what is God doing? After describing the fact he's going to rip into them as a savage beast, he asks these two questions. Will I come and rescue these people from death in the grave? And then he asks these two questions. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, oh Sheol, where's your victory? Or where are your plagues? Then those questions would be God calling upon death and the grave to loose all of their powers to destroy these people. It's like death bring it on, shul or the grave, uh, bring it on as well. In other words, if you take the first two statements as questions, then this whole verse calls death and hell to rain down on the Israelite people. One commentator described it this way. Uh, he said, God calls for death and shul here personified to loosen all their pestilent powers from the underworld upon this faithless people of Israel and Ephraim. I think this interpretation of verse 14, you still there? Still, are, are you awake? You got this, right? Just one verse in the Old Testament. I think this understanding and putting question marks at the end of the first two phrases in verse 14 is better because I think this whole verse and the whole chapter up to this point is about God's judgment upon Israel. So I take it this way because the whole chapter is talking about judgment, not about God coming to rescue them. And the other reason I take it this way is look at the very last phrase. I mean, there are five phrases in this verse, right? What's the last phrase say? From God concerning Israel. Compassion is hidden from my eyes. 
God is saying, there'll be no compassion in my eyes when it comes to the judgment of Israel and Ephraim. And so consequently, it seems more appropriate that Hosea's original questions expect death and hell to reign victorious over Israel than for them to be interpreted as a promise that God's going to deliver them. I like how the the Net Bible translates this verse. Will I deliver them from the power of Sheol? It's implied. No, I will not. Will I redeem them from death? No, I will not. O death, bring on your plagues. O Sheol, bring on your destruction. My eyes will not show any compassion. And so that's how I prefer to take that verse. Four questions, followed by a statement that compassion will not, that compassion will be hidden from the eyes of God. So again, to me, it appears that Paul is taking a text about death's victory into one that mocks death for losing. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if that's the case, I think one of the questions that we should ask here is what would lead Paul to take verses about death swallowing up everything and death being victorious over everything and everyone, including Israel and Ephraim? What would lead Paul to change that and to use it in a different direction? And I think that he's been telling us all along in 1 Corinthians 15. And so look in your Bibles at verse 50. There's something that happened that changed our relationship to death. As a matter of fact, we've been singing about it for over a month now. Look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. I think of verse 45 as well. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam, whose Christ, became a life-giving spirit. And then he just makes it abundantly clear what changed our relationship to death in verse 57. Okay, we haven't even gotten there. That's for next week when we do communion. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through whom? Our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to listen to the words of two commentators who co-wrote a commentary on 1 Corinthians, Brian Rossner and Roy Champa. They said, interpreting the passage from the perspective of the resurrection of Christ, Paul turns a summons to death, the Old Testament way of using summoning death, into a taunt. The rhetorical questions now sneer defiantly at death's impotence. It's powerless. In the face of God's powerful act of mercy and forgiveness in whom? In Christ. In Hosea, death is called upon to punish sin, but thanks to Christ, such a role is no longer needed. Forgiveness of sin and his consequence, death because of the completed work of Jesus Christ. So what Paul does here is he creates, he takes two passages from the Old Testament, he puts them together 
to create a powerful threefold taunt of death at the end of the section because Jesus Christ's victory over death secures the day when death will ultimately be defeated when we arise with new bodies and are like him. As I said, I've spent quite a while in this text, the last parts of the last six years. Throughout those years, God has used the text to challenge me and to encourage me. Challenge me, because this is a difficult passage. you feel that today? A little bit difficult, right? I tried to make it simple for us. But to encourage me as well. And I'd like to talk to you a little bit about how this passage has encouraged me. A few years ago, my grandmother went home to be with the Lord. I was very close to her. Uh, my mother's family, uh, uh, for years and years and years, all of her family lived on the same hillside in uh, Clymer, Pennsylvania, in, in, well, actually in the country outside of Clymer. What happened was, years ago, my grandfather bought many acres, and he's such a, he was such a giving person. When the time came for his kids to get married, he would just start parceling off land, and all the, all the kids, all five of them, lived right there on the hillside. So we, like, owned the whole hill. Well, that meant that I grew up right next door to my grandmother. And I spent a lot of time with her from uh, ages 1 or 0 to 18, just about every day. Um, I don't think I'm exaggerating. About every day of my life for 18 years, I was able to see my grandmother. And she was such a, a source of joy to our whole family. She was a strong follower of Jesus Christ, great faith, and a matriarch to the family. You know, one who loved Christ and tried to keep people pointed in the right direction. Near the end of my grandmother's life, she contracted a rare disease that made made it difficult for her to swallow. Eating became impossible, and choking became more frequent. And eventually, this disease took her life. Yet it was this text about death's swallowing that brought me comfort and filled me with faith as I lost my grandmother. I remember standing with our family at the graveside when they were preparing to lower her body into the grave. I not rehearsed this or talked about this by just with all the family there, no one else, I put my hand on the casket and said that while it appears that death is victorious today, it feels strong. It feels that it swallows down everyone in its path. One day soon, death itself will be swallowed up in victory. For as verse 54, this text says, when this perishable, this perishable shall put on imperishability, then shall come to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. Men and women, Christ's resurrection secures the eventual and inevitable defeat of death that will occur at our future resurrection. Perhaps 
you're here today and you've felt the tyranny of death's cruel reign and rule over you, over the loss of a believing loved one, perhaps this person was closer to you than anyone else in this world. You spent years with them, you loved them, and death came. I encourage you in this way. Someday soon, we will experience the end of death and the enjoyment of resurrection life with those who've gone on before, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We sang that song at the beginning. There's a part of that song that gripped me, Crown Him with Many Crowns, where the the author says, he talks about Christ as coming so that death may die. So that death may die. One day soon they'll come. May these verses encourage you, fill you with faith, that you'll persevere until the moment when we're reunited with loved ones in heaven. Perhaps there are some here who are not followers of Christ. You've never confessed your sin to him or declared that you believe that he came, died, and rose again for you. Just, I would ask you for a favor for one moment here. Just give me one moment of, of your attention. I have to say, in looking through this text, if you are an unbeliever and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, death still reigns over you. And there is no promise of victory for you in the future unless you believe in Christ and you repent of your sin. And when death comes calling for you, if you do not know Christ as your Savior, it will mean an eternity in hell, painful torment and anguish because of your sin. It will mean that you'll be totally separated from the grace of God. And I tell you, if you don't know Christ, that there's only one person who can help you. There's only one thing that can save you. And it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, won't you believe in him? Won't you confess your sins to him today and declare to God that you want to be a follower of Christ and gain victory over death? Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to this passage, we think through this, it strikes me that every person in the room, every person in the room has made a decision regarding Christ. Lord, either we believe and we repent of our sins so that we're saved and these statements about victory over death are ours, or we reject Christ we continue in sin. And the gullet of death will swallow to an eternity in hell. Father, if there's someone here this morning who does not know the gospel, who does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would open their eyes. I pray, Father, that you would allow them to see their need of Christ, that they would 
confess their sins to you right now and that they would declare to you that they believe that Christ came and he died and he rose again victorious in their place to save them from the consequences of their sin. And Lord, perhaps as we work through texts like this, a lot of texts in the last several weeks about death, perhaps there are some believers who are grieving the loss of loved ones. They are sorrowing. Their heart is discouraged. Lord, I pray that they would see that this text is not only or even primarily about death, but it's about life from the dead. It's about Jesus. It's about victory. It's about a stingless death because of the work of Christ. Lord, to those people who are struggling, I pray that you would give them a deeper, stronger, abiding faith that allows them to believe that one day soon they will see their loved one. Most importantly, they'll see you forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.